Welcome to the Startup Microdose podcast with me, Ed Stevens, and usually Oliver Jones. We have a US twist this week. This interview is with Scott Kirsner, founder of Innovation Leader, where he has helped some of the world's biggest organizations like Amazon, Google, Disney, and Lego get to grips with what innovation means. Scott brings together a lifetime of anecdotes and interesting stories, from humble beginnings covering Web 1.0 as a journalist to his thoughts on the future of technology. Scott has recently launched his book, The Innovation Economy. I highly recommend you check it out. So without further ado, we bring you Scott Kersner. I'm joined by Scott Kersner. Thanks for joining, Scott. Thanks for having me on, Ed. Uh, Scott, you are the founder and CEO of Innovation Leader, and I think you've got a lot of experience thinking deeply on the topic of how people innovate, um, whether that be big company or small company, which I think will be quite exciting to get into. And I fully appreciate that you've brought the uh, the metaphorical sunshine with a, with a colourful outfit. It's it's grim over here in the UK, but um, it's it's delighted me it delighted me a lot. So, just to, I guess. It'd be great to get your background into how you, you've kind of positioned yourself today. Um, you sort of have a journalistic background, um, and I would love to hear how that started, and then maybe we can sort of start looking into what you're currently doing and, and just exploring some topics around that. Well, you know, I, I'd love to start there. I, at university, I was always on the college newspaper, and I started my own magazine when I was at Boston University, but I never really aspired to get a PhD or a master's degree or go on to graduate school. Once I was released into the wild um, after university, I just really wanted to figure out how to get paid money to write, to be honest. I mean, I'm not um, I'm not an entrepreneur first and foremost. I just wanted to figure out how to make a living as a writer. And so I think what I gravitated towards was um, I spent a lot of time writing for magazines like Fast Company and Wired and Chief Information Officer magazine pretty shortly after getting out of college. And it turned into, it was like kind of a graduate school education in specific topics that the magazines wanted me to write about. And they sent me traveling around the world. And I found that to be a lot of fun. It was better than paying to go to graduate school, for sure. And if I was going to press you for the years active, um, would it be fair to say you crossed over the kind of dot-com era and some of the coverage around that? Because that would be a super interesting. I mean, we, we we reference it and people talk about it as this kind of time where things were really fast and loose. Um, but, you know, for a lot of the new generation of entrepreneurs, we, we missed out on that. And so it was interesting to know what you saw looking forward at it and then what precipitated afterwards. Well, yeah, I was doing two things in that late 90s era. One was traveling around and trying to visit all the interesting companies of the time. I mean, I interviewed Jeff Bezos when Amazon was still just selling books and, you know, interviewed a lot of the founders of Google and Yahoo and uh, YouTube. I guess that was sort of a later era company. But, um, you know, so part of what I was doing was tracking how are these companies growing and how are they um, evolving their strategies in that Internet 1.0 era. Here in Boston, we had Monster.com was a big company sort of trying to disrupt the way people found jobs in the late 90s. And the other thing that I was doing for a couple of years is I got a great job at the Boston Globe helping them figure out what should newspapers do on the Internet. So kind of what are the business models going to be that will support publishing content? And, um, you know, it was a fun, crazy time. I think right now in terms of the amount of money sloshing around, 
um, in you know at least here in the states in venture capital for startups, it feels pretty pretty similar. Um, and I think the big difference now versus then is then you had some young entrepreneurs that were just out of college, but there was still kind of a belief that you wanted to have the CEOs of these companies in the dot-com era be a little bit seasoned. You know, maybe they had had two or three jobs. Um, there wasn't quite, Jeff Bezos obviously had had a few jobs before starting Amazon. Um, and there wasn't quite the same model of you're going to come right out of college and start a company right away, um, which is, which is uh, you know, acceptable thing now well i think this is part of what makes it it's exciting now and i would i would echo your point if you looked at the uk and the european startup uh, environment the amount of cash going around is, is has grown a lot um a lot more people would claim a stake on wanting to become entrepreneurs a lot more people are entrepreneurs and a lot more people are in the financing space that exists around it but what was kind of cool about web 1.0 is yeah, if we look at the tools that help you assemble startup companies now, I mean, you'd claim that that they were informed by data. There was a sort of modular approach to the people that were coming into the ecosystem and helping you innovate. So it's like you, you're, you're data led. Whereas back in the days of of Web point one one it was like people had a they almost like had a hunch. And I'm not saying that they exist. Of course, they didn't exist without data. I mean, people people weren't morons just because they didn't have computers and the internet. Of course, they were they were very smart. But it was. It was a bit like the Wild West, um, and now it seems a bit more like we're kind of siloing things, or you've got very specific channels that you you may use. Um, but while Bo were covering these, I mean, what did you think? That or how comfortable were you with the role that that journalism has tried to find fitting in between? Because obviously, you touched on the model of digitizing that asset and and how you maintain atten attention and how you kind of keep up with all the the buzz. So how how does one stay relevant in that that environment and how did you stay on top of the innovation that you thought would matter to you know, potential readers who are uh, trying to trying to understand it well i i think that i'm not a super technical programmer type person i don't think anyone would ever hire me to work for an it department uh, or write you know even python code i'm not employable in that way but you know as a kid i learned how to write basic and when i was working for the boston globe i learned how to write HTML and some Perl scripts. And so I think that at least understanding, well, what are all the building blocks that these companies are working with gets you a lot closer to being able to ask intelligent questions about the challenges um, that they face. And you can just have better conversations with entrepreneurs when you understand, you know, as you were you were talking about the some of the building block elements. I mean, back in the dot-com 1.0 days, people were still buying servers and hosting their own servers often to um, have a website that was publicly accessible to the world, which is crazy to think of now. Um, and so understanding what all those pieces were and how much they cost and you know why you would want to have a server from Sun versus a server from someone else and um, the commoditization of server technology over time. Right. Um, so you, I feel like journalists are good when they know at least enough to be able to have uh, a mid-level, not super deep and technical conversation, but a mid-level conversation with entrepreneurs and founders. Um, it just helps you ask the right questions. And I think, you know, a lot of media institutions here in the States, um, they have this idea that you should be able to throw any journalist at any story. You know, you should be able to send them to the White House one day and send them to Amazon the next day. And the day after that, send them to a 
you know, murder scene and that they should be equally good at covering all of those things, right? Because all you're doing is asking questions. Um, and the reality is that I think if you're covering industries like tech or if you're covering, ind covering industries like life sciences, it takes a long time to figure out, you know, what are the real challenges here? What are all the business dynamics? Um, why is one 3D printing company different from another 3D printing company? Um, you know, what makes the technology special? And so I do think it helps to, to sort of accrete that experience over time, as opposed to just get, getting rotated around, you know, from politics to murders to tech. Well, I, I think it's quite refreshing for, for, for a number of reasons. Um, I think journalism at its best is a really great way of calling out bullshit um, I think it was instrumental in what happened with Theranos in terms of the investigation into that was was crucial mm -hmm. in unearthing the, the pillar of lies that were assembling and clearly the financiers involved were either ignorant or, or obfuscating and I'm not going to make any accusations on that but to have some literacy especially when um, a lot of claims can be made in tech a lot of a lot there's a lot of claims behind innovation and actually the unifying characteristic of the journalists in that space are you become familiar with change, innovation, spotting it, spotting the things that are consistent, and then accepting that there's a new technology that's come along, whether it's Bitcoin or some other, and watching the curve of, of hype and, and all of that stuff come around it. So um, I think the role's really important. And, and would you say that it's iterated and it was that journey that's informed your, your current your current uh company that you founded which is to focus purely on innovation i guess and could you give me some some scope for that well yeah i think to touch on one thing that you said which is really important for entrepreneurs and journalists both is just having a broad network and having there be a lot of people that mm. you can send a text to or you can send a twitter dm to or you can call up on the phone and for journalists often it's it's sort of doing a a bullshit test, right? Of like, hey, I just met with this company and they said they can do X, Y, and Z. Does that make any sense to you? And they will say, no, it doesn't. And here's the question you should ask to push on whether they really can do X, Y, and Z. And so that is just, the network is incredibly valuable to journalists to, to push on things and to understand the right questions to ask. And I think it's also just important to entrepreneurs, right? When you're doing, trying to do reference checks on an employee, you know, a prospective hire, do you want to ask the three people that that employee gives you? Or do you want to say, oh, I have someone in my network that probably has worked with that person or one of their managers and let me call them up. Or someone's trying to sell you some new tool, you know, having someone in your network that uses that tool that you can say, what's your experience been with this new SaaS offering? So I think sometimes people get very focused on what they're trying to achieve and they let their network wither or they don't focus on ways to make it grow. Obviously, in the pandemic, it's been really hard to grow your network. Um, but mm. one of the reasons I like stuff like Clubhouse is um, that Clubhouse is a really neat app for expanding your network and sort of keeping it healthy and staying in touch with people that you know. It's very interesting. I mean, as somebody, and you've done it yourself, in terms of people who, who produce content around a podcast, experiencing clubhouse in the recent weeks has, has been really interesting because the ability to assemble a credible and very interesting panel which sort of has an ephemeral quality to it as well and, and again it's one of those mediums where and um, we touched on this just before the interview where it will the, the conversations have become very organic and actually just the one thing i 
went on there, um, not this Thursday, the Thursday before, Mark Zuckerberg was on there. And there was not only the Mark Zuckerberg room, there was a spillover room where somebody was recording the, the Mark Zuckerberg content. So it was like, people are obviously really engaging with that access to that individual. So in terms of an information distribution that's sort of semi-private as well, um, it, it was fascinating. So what, what are your thoughts on, on Clubhouse, how it's evolving, how it may continue to be used as a vehicle, um, either from a sort of journalistic point of view or, or from a sort of company comms uh, and relationship building point of view? Well, we've been experimenting with Clubhouse at Innovation Leader to see if we can get people at larger companies onto the platform and having interesting conversations. I, I hope that Clubhouse is going to be for less of a packaged conversation and, and it has that ability to be spontaneous and live and, and so more organic where you kind of never know who's going to show up into the room and you never know who you might pull up on stage or who's going to, you know, raise their hand and ask a question. So I feel like Clubhouse has the opportunity to occupy this really interesting space that is not quite a panel discussion at a conference. It's not quite a webcast. It's not quite a podcast, but it's somewhere in between. And when I've been convening conversations on it, I feel like the, the you know, the number one um, you know, the number one dynamic I'm looking for is spontaneity and unpredictability, because I feel like people have really been lacking that in the last year. Um, you know, so I, I hope that it evolves to be a place where it's not just about influencers attracting followers, but it is a place you can go and say, yeah. hey, I met Ed Stevens. He was a really intelligent guy. I'm following him now. And I actually feel like I know him a little bit because we had some good interchange on the app. Uh, not just I subscribe to his podcast. Yeah, no, it, it was interesting for, from that point of view because I guess that's what <laughs> it's then up to the person who curates the clubhouse and, and how they decide to set it up. Because if you are the mayor of the town hall and you like listening to the sound of your own voice and it's it's the you show, then I think you really miss out on the value of clubhouse. I think if you you're right, if you bring people on stage, if people want to contribute, provided it then doesn't get co-opted by... Um, a sort of semi-repetitious agenda, which is just, you know, somebody on there to kind of cause havoc or just tackle the established order and you get bogged down classically into a discussion that's not building and you, you lose the audience, right? But I think if people put their thought process into it as a, as a consistent area where you can reliably drop into a clubhouse, um, I think it's quite cool and it seems to be catching wind outside of maybe just occupying people during COVID. And, and I don't know if you had a thought on its relevance post-COVID, but if you think it'll be resilient to to people getting back into the, the real world. I do think it's going to have some durability post-COVID, in part because it's great as an international convener. You know, once we start going to conferences again, right, I'm going to start seeing all my contacts in Boston, and I'm going to start traveling to San Francisco and feeling like I'm part of the Silicon Valley scene. But the thing that's neat about Clubhouse, you know, we ran a conversation this week where it was two business school professors. One was in Spain. One was in Lausanne, Switzerland. It was me in Boston. Um, there were people showing up from Florida to ask questions and California to ask questions. And I've met great people in China and Singapore on Clubhouse. And yeah, some conferences have that kind of international audience, but I think it's going to be a while before international travel rebounds, right? And people... Um, you know, sort of are freely hopping on planes to go from Australia to London or London to San Francisco. Um, and so I do think that part of the value proposition and what makes Clubhouse interesting is that creating a real, truly international community around particular topics. 
which I think is really good because it, it breaks down walls. You get, um, you know, there's a lot of drivers behind globalization and a lot of it's sort of some of its friction, some of it's progressive. I think there's a lot of uncertainty as to what it, you know, what our contract with globalization means. But to have smart brains from around the world and see people care about the same problems or attempting to communicate over and around topics, I think is is it it at its best. Um and actually, the, the thing that's amazing is we've been faced with all these communication mediums which thrust you onto a, a you know a computer screen or a mobile phone. Yet they all feel very they all feel very different. And and actually, in the some of the prep notes I was given, um, you've got some opinions on kind of Zoom's potential and and the work from home culture and how that will evolve. And for my two cents, I'd say that Zoom feels in, entirely inorganic. It's something very very brittle and stayed about it and you know it had this meteoric valuation last year and, and i don't know if they've done anything with the product to to help usher that along um so i wasn't sure what your thoughts on on work from home culture and these sort of digital communication devices that we have and, and how effective something like zoom is and will continue to be well i've been struggling with it i think like everybody else has i want to actually go back because you asked something that i wanted to touch on really briefly and, and we can go you know, go back mm -hmm. to that if you want. But you were sort of asking about, you know, my experience as a journalist informing my experience as an entrepreneur now with Innovation Leader. The one thing I want to say about that is I've always known entrepreneurship is hard. But the one thing I didn't know, you know, we've been building Innovation Leader as a bootstrapped company as opposed to a venture-backed company. And I guess I never realized, mm -hmm. like, what a huge divide. You know, most of the media is obsessed with venture-backed companies like Uber and Airbnb and Clubhouse, right? And so they get all the attention. Um, bootstrap companies often are very under the radar and they don't want to hire up, you know, PR firm or they don't have a marketing person that's got a megaphone. Um, they're just building the business. And so I never appreciated, A, how hard that approach is and B, just how much attention goes to the venture-backed companies relative to lots of great businesses that are what I call doing it the old-fashioned way, you know? Getting getting revenue from customers and and um, you know in our case sponsors and members um, as opposed to having the venture capitalists write you a big check. Well, I think there's a there's a, a pyramid of um, vested interests uh, within that. I mean, the the funding round has almost become a PR story unto itself, irrespective of what the company's doing. It's like if I go out and have a T-shirt with my brand name on and say I raised ten million dollars, and suddenly that's a piece of journalism right and and it sort of exists unto itself and i sort of touch on this sometimes which is we've got a, a dislocation between the idea of small business and an entrepreneur one is an identity one is a, 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 a concept that is obliged to deliver business and and keep the lights on i suspect like i haven't gone back and looked at the history in the u.s but i think that you know, venture capital dates to the post-World War II era here as a as a real thing where you yeah. have venture capital firms that would take meetings with businesses and then put money into them. There was a there was a company here in Boston called American Research and Development founded by a Harvard Business School professor that's regarded as one of the first venture mm -hmm. capital firms. But I think it wasn't until the 80s or 90s that the media kind of got obsessed with venture capital funding and IPOs as a indicator of these are the companies worth paying attention to, right? You know, the Apple era of or and the Genentech era of these companies raising lots of money and being on a rocket ship ride to going public. 
And I, I think it'd be interesting to look at now if you opened up the business section of a magazine or newspaper. Sorry to be so focused on print, but I'm thinking about the physical object. That's right. And you said, mm. what percentage of coverage here is just about good businesses versus businesses that have raised a lot of money or like now are going public through these SPAC entities, which is the big thing in 2020? Mm. Um, you'd be surprised. I mean, I'm sure it's a 80-20 mix of 80% venture capital as an indication of this company is worth writing about and paying attention to. And 20% or less is just, you know... Francine is growing a great business, and so we wanted to write about it. Is, do you, I, I'll put my cynical hat on here. Is that the the journalists knowing that if you write favorably about a company, let's say a young Uber or, or a young company that raises a bunch of money, that then you get access to that company, ongoing stories about that company, resource, relationships with the founder, and if they skyrocket, you, you know, you've got a, a well-feathered bed um, versus dealing with a something a little more modest, or do you think it's just where the eyeballs of the readers are, are, are concerned and wanting to go? I think that it's more the latter, and and in particular, every journalist when they're coming up with story ideas, right? They often have an editor that they have to say, "Here's why I've decided to write about this company," and so having some data point, like Francine's company just hired a CEO who came out of or a COO who came out of Uber, and that's a big deal. Um, you know, that's kind of a mm -hmm. news moment that would make you say it's worth writing about now, or they just raised $50 million, or, um, you know, they've just acquired this other startup. And so they're going to mash up, you know, these two ride sharing startups. Journalists need to have those reasons to write about the company today, rather than let's wait a week or two. And often bootstrapped businesses that are being built the old fashioned way and growing organically, they don't quite have those moments. You know, like they never hire in the trophy COO or, or CTO from a big company that makes a splash. They're not doing acquisitions. They're not raising venture rounds. And so it can be hard sometimes for journalists. This is giving you a little look behind the curtain to, to say in that editorial meeting, you know, when everybody's gathered on Zoom mm -hmm. around the table, here's why we should write about Francine's company or create a radio segment or TV segment about that company today. Um, you know, so I, I, I think I agree with the latter more than they're thinking, oh, Francine's company might be the next Airbnb or Instagram, and I can write a book one day, and maybe I'll get invited to speak about them at conferences. I don't think people are thinking that far ahead. Yeah, see, this this is fascinating from a, a UK outsider's perspective. And, and again, please pull me up on any ignorance, but to... to people in in the uk we see the us is very entrepreneurial it's like the home of kind of get your slice you know whether that st stays true but it's just like the the american dream is part of the narrative and then there is maybe this division between small business owners and people who run good businesses and i would say that there's probably a lot of them around the country in middle america and then you've got these big influential companies that you know then they're, they're not only just influencing what happens in america i mean they are you know we see airbnb sweep through the uk you see uber sweep through the uk and it's like they are they are shaping culture and and so there's almost like a divide in terms of actually what you picked up on even within america of, of the people who just you know huckle down and run their business and versus these people who are global giants um and the objectives of the two and who's really driving then culture 
where people spend their time, attention, anything that you want to sort of pick up on that, that the companies are doing now. Um, so which is kind of an interesting divide. I mean, I would almost, I love metaphors. And so I would almost use the metaphor of professional sports versus all other sports, right? There's lots of people mm. in the world today playing football, playing baseball, playing cricket uh, for their schools in a neighborhood league, in an after work beer league when things are normal. And then there's professional sports, right? Where it's like, sponsorship deals, building huge stadiums, everybody's making a boatload of money. And that's kind of what venture capital is trying to, they want to be at that level. They don't want to be at the, well, we have a softball team that's, you know, <laughs> plays, uh, you know, <laughs> plays after work, um, you know, and has some, has some beer afterwards. Um, so they really are aspiring to go big with everything they invest in and create companies that are going to, you know, they often say, look, we're trying to hit home runs. We're not trying to hit singles and, and doubles. Um, and so that often leads to really big failures. You mentioned Theranos before. There's plenty of companies we could talk about that have raised lots of money and then flamed out. Here in mm. Boston, we had a, a startup called Jibo that was trying to make a, the first sort of friendly home robot. Um, over the last couple of years that was fun to watch as they raised lots of money and then got sort of crushed by <laughs> Amazon Echo. Um, you know, but but that is the aspiration. It's like you can't you can't be an amateur venture capitalist and you can't be an amateur entrepreneur raising venture capital. You really have to think like I'm in the Premier League, you know, or or I need to be in the Premier League soon or this group of investors is going to be upset with me. Yeah. No, a, a point well made, and, and I think a fitting analogy. And actually, it does take me on to wanting to talk about what what you've done, what your company does, and the the, the strapline for that, because you're running something that is running like a business. Um, so, how would you present the idea of of what you're currently operating? Well, I, I mean, I had a great time as a journalist writing about startups, and what I realized after you know a decade or so of doing that is that. Big companies have the challenge of innovation and continually developing new and better products uh, and services, but it got so much less attention than the startup world. You know, in startups, you had TechCrunch and VentureBeat and all these websites and now podcasts and now clubhouse rooms that focus on the startup world and how do you raise money? How do you build companies? But if you worked inside a big Fortune 500 scale company, a big global company, no one was talking about the problems and issues related to launching a new product or creating a mobile app or an Alexa skill or anything new inside those companies. And we just observed it's a whole different thing when you say true entrepreneurship where startups are concerned and what we've been talking about in the venture-backed world or the bootstrap world, true entrepreneurship versus intrapreneurship with an I inside an mm. existing company. They're totally different things. And so with Innovation Leader, we wanted to focus on the I, the intrapreneurship, and try to be helpful to, to people who work in that world. Okay, so you would go in and would you then take the C-suite and help them learn, build that innovation culture, uh, and then start to implement some of these ideas? with sort of client relationships? Well, we took a different approach to it where we said there's lots of people who sell consulting services and sell advice about what should you do. What we said is almost we wanted to try to create the campfire 
for those big company innovation people, whether they're CEOs or whether they're VPs of research and development or CTOs, whatever their title, we wanted to create the campfire and bring them together. And so for us, that meant in-person events, online events, um, creating a lot of content for them, but really being a gathering place where they could learn from one another, as opposed to us saying, you know, like every consulting firm does, you know, give us uh, $500,000 and we will give you a slide deck that says company X innovation strategy. Here's the right answer. You know, Cause we think that's really hard yeah. to do. Well, it's, it's funny because again, this is, this is, you know, I'm hazarding a bit of a, a guess, but some companies, it's almost like they brought in the innovation consultants to make the, I don't want to call them the drones, feel like that they were being catered for. It's like, you know, your, your job's not so boring because we get innovation consultants in. So if you were dreaming of doing something here, we're going to help you realize that dream. But ultimately, it's like a scratching a bit of an itch that if you were planning on jumping out of the company, it's like, well, you know, we do some exciting stuff here, but it could happen and we will support you if you want it to happen. But ultimately carry on working. Yeah, I, I think you could call that innovation window dressing or innovation theater, some <laughs> people call it, where it's like, you know, um, you know, where it's, uh, let's have innovation day. And I forget what you call the show in the UK. In the US, we call it Shark Tank. Is it called Dragon's Den there? Or is that? In Dragon's Den. Dragon's it is called Den. Dragon's Den, yeah. So they're like, oh, we'll have a fun event like Dragon's Den or Shark Tank, where our senior executives will listen to ideas being pitched by all the employees. And then We'll give the winning employee, you know, an Apple Watch or whatever the prize is. And then it's like the next day, go back to your job and um, wait for the next yeah. big innovation day. Yeah. Um, so I think you're right. A lot of companies do approach it in this theatrical way where they're not really. It's, yeah, it's like a corporate a corporate day, right? It's like a, it's like I have an off site, um, I guess, which leads me to the question. What one I what I think that. There's a lot of lazy assertions, which people go corporate, and then they just think everybody's the same, which does disguise the fact that some are probably very good at, at running these kind of cultures. And so that takes me to my next question, which is, could you give some examples of people you've worked with who you think um, do a really good job of this or people who participate in your, your programs and your events who you think, wow, they really turn up and they, they really are at the cutting edge of this? Well, a couple of quick examples. I mean, the the biggest thing that we've noticed is that you can't be event-based or episodic about it. You can't have one day of the year and say, like, that's going to be innovation day. And then the other 364 days, just go do your job. Um, and you have to believe that innovation is a long-term project. Um, there's a lot of startups where, you know, they go from year zero to year one to year five, and they may not really have a real product, right, until year six, year seven, year eight, sometimes that people are paying significant amounts of money for. But inside big companies to say, oh, this is going to take seven or eight years, they often don't have the attention span for it. You know, they need something to produce results this quarter or next quarter. So patience and being consistent about it is really one key thing. But I mean, some examples, I was just talking to someone this morning and using Disney as a pretty good example, right, of a company that thinks about innovation and invests in innovation in a lot of different ways. Um, if they see somebody else doing something valuable like Pixar with digital animation, they will pay a lot of money and acquire innovation. So that's one thing. Um, for a while, Disney was running a Techstars accelerator. I don't know if that's still happening, but for a couple of years, they ran a Techstars accelerator where it was like, let's invite startups to our headquarters campus. We'll give them some interaction with our senior executives 
and everybody get, you know, the startups get a sense of what Disney cares about and what our issues and opportunities are. And the senior executives get to understand what's happening with emerging technology. So that's another way that they innovate. Um, you know, and then they have an Imagineering group and a Disney research group that are mm. saying, let's hire smart people, work with academic researchers sometimes, work with outside contractors and try to envision what the future of entertainment looks like. And all that stuff is really expensive, but you know, it's what Disney's a company that was founded in like what, 1921 or something like that. And it's still a relevant company a hundred years later. And I was following um, some podcasts talking about the Disney stock price and they were speculating about it last year when obviously the parks closed, they had exposure to some of the cruise liners and they're sort of saying that these are not going to be going so well, but Disney plus is absolutely going through the roof and and they called it and i thought i remember thinking maybe it's too niche maybe it's just a niche on a niche and they can market to their own audience but it's it's gone gangbusters and actually if you saw soul which they created recently i'm like that was that was unbelievable and, and that was a perfect example of of them delighting innovating staying current and then and then seeing that vision through in a way that wasn't like a cheap um a cheap replicant of something else they really went in to deliver quality within that vision so and it, it was unreal i think they did a fantastic and, job. and one of the things that people miss about disney and companies that are good at innovation disney google would be another example that does this is they'll fail at something and not run away from that thing so like before disney had disney plus there are probably three or four other projects you could point to where they were thinking we need a direct channel to the consumer's home. And they had a set-top box for a while that was called Movie Beam that didn't work, right? So they took a lot of shots on goal at this idea of we need to be in consumers' homes with our content. We can't just be going over the cable or satellite system. And similarly, Google, I think about um, when I was living in Silicon Valley and covering Google and YouTube and the early days of internet video, Google built their own thing called Google Video first. And so they mm. said, we think people are going to want to share video on the internet. Some of it will come from big media companies like, like Disney, um, and some of it will be homemade, and we're going to build our own thing. And then they realized we didn't, we didn't build it right. You know, a lot of our assumptions about the tech stack and the business model were wrong. YouTube did it right, and we're going to go buy YouTube. You know, and so I think companies that are good at innovation have that ability to both try building stuff internally. They have a great radar screen where they see what's happening outside of the company. And sometimes they partner with those entities, right? Disney had a long partnership with Pixar and they, uh, you know, they bought technology from Pixar before acquiring it. Um, and so, I, so I do think that, um, you know, companies often forget that you have to sort of have this this vision of where the world is going and fail at some stuff first. Um, General Motors, I remember going to visit them in Detroit, and they were all in on hydrogen vehicles. Hydrogen was going to be the fuel mm. of the future, you know? And so now this year, General Motors says our whole fleet is going electric. Um, and so, you know, this this stuff is challenging, but um, I think the best companies don't don't stub their toe or have a failure and then say, we're never going to touch that again. We think that, you know, is a dead end. I mean, you touched on a really interesting point from, from my way of thinking. So a company, I think that has been pretty coherent in their aim, actually, though I don't necessarily love 
their product suite is Facebook. And I think Facebook has never... Un- I think Mark Zuckerberg's always been clear on what he wanted to do, which is connect people. And he wanted to get data on people. And he wanted to bring them together in more ways. And through his ecosystem, I mean, he's cannibalized a lot of attention. And, and he, he's very clear in just delivering on that mission. And I guess this is the, the question is... Is innovation or should innovation be loyal to the ambition of the company as they've set out just to exist as a company and innovate? Or do we have a responsible through line of innovation as a species? Maybe this is a little bit of a broad kind of idea. But like, you know, when I look at Facebook, I think the the social dilemma picked up on this. It's like that there's billions of computational hours per day spent with people thinking about I don't know, whatever Facebook chooses them to think about. Then you have a company like SpaceX, which is sort of saying, well, actually, our mission could be to get people onto Mars. So it's like, how do we how do we build the relationship between where we think innovation should go? And it's not up to anybody to decide that. I mean, it is sort of semi-democratic. And, and where a company is being very successful in pushing its own mission, um, and, and how do we get the balance between the two such that we make innovation as we'd, we'd really wish to see? There's a lot of good questions in there. Um, <laughs> I do think that sometimes companies um, may have a mission, you know, Google's don't be evil mission that proves to be hard once you get down into the details of like, oh, we also need to grow because we're a public company and we need to be global and we need to operate in China. But um, the Chinese government maybe has uh, some aims that... Uh, will will send us down a path that is um, not necessarily, you know, uh, the most ethical path if you're thinking about serving, you know, serving human beings, you know, rather than consumers or customers. Um, I do think, like, when I think about innovation and, and the, well, I mean, I think the best companies are really thinking about, you know, improving quality of life and progress for us as a people. I mean, like, you know, you look over hundreds and thousands of years, right, and it's like, how can we have more leisure time? How can we be healthier? How can we live longer? Um, how can we give opportunity to more people who want to, uh, you know, achieve what they want to achieve, whether it's starting a company or getting an education or just raising their family? Um, Steven Pinker wrote this book, which I think is called Enlightenment Now from 2018, where he talks about just, you know, what a great point innovation and invention and science has gotten us to today. We sometimes forget that. He makes a point that the media is often Mm -hmm. focused on all the negative stuff, you know, the latest bad thing that has happened in the world. Um, and And I think that companies, when they're on the right track, right, are focused on, we're all human beings. We're not consumers. We're not data points. Um, we're not, um, assets and employees to be squeezed for all we're worth. Right. But they view themselves as we are another brick in that road of of progress. And I mean, man, if you couldn't see that in 2020, where you had these companies like BioNTech in Germany and Moderna here in Boston that developed vaccines for COVID faster than anyone ever thought, you know, even in January Mm. of 2020, there were people saying, well, you know, it's going to take us years and years if we can get a vaccine. And here we are in 2021, and we're delivering that vaccine, those vaccines um, to millions and millions of people. That's an example of what I mean, right? Like, there was lots of money that went into those companies. Um, there was partnerships between the startup BioNTech and Pfizer, this giant global company, which some people might say classic 
evil pharma company. We hate them. But like they are doing something that is having a huge impact on civilization. And I think um, helping us avoid countless numbers of deaths. Right. So that's the kind of innovation that I like. <laughs> we are in an intoxicating era of, of innovation whereby, you know, Everybody always asked, when was the future going to be? You'd watch films in the 80s and the 90s. When's the future going to be? When are we going to feel like we're in the future? And, and actually, for the first time, I think it's starting to feel pretty pretty close. I think some of the concepts we're, we're getting into, um, you know, you talk about like, I mean, it might be a sort of bit of an old yarn to kind of look at Elon Musk as the poster child for, for innovation. But really, he, he sort of, when you look at Neuralink, you look at Tesla, you look at SpaceX, you look at the boring company, you look at this, that, the other. It's like he, he has a vision, a sort of sci-fi vision of the future. And when you take something like the Cybertruck, which almost feels like it's been inspired by science fiction, and it's and it's coming into our daily lives. And, and some of these things are not even things I think people would have started predicting was going to be on our agenda. And that that maybe is the, it feels more like this is the culture we live in now, where everybody's sort of part of this conversation. It's not just siloed over to Silicon Valley like it may have been in the 80s or the early days of venture. It's like the whole world's having this conversation and we're all starting to think about what this means and what we can rely on is that change is going to keep happening faster and faster and faster, which, you know, is is exciting, but it's also a little, you know, scary. Yeah, it does time. make you want to unplug and, and just go to a re- remote beach sometime or get on a sailboat and <laughs> sail away from, yeah. from it all. But I think the thing, I agree with you about Elon Musk and he is a, pretty good, you know, sometimes uh, bratty and poorly behaved, but like a pretty good example of somebody who sees problems and sees opportunities. And it's just like, I'm all in, we're going to go solve that problem. But I also think in life sciences, I mean, I was terrible in in biology and chemistry in school. And so I think a lot of people look at that industry and, and don't quite understand how much innovation is happening in the life sciences industry, whether it's tools for genetic sequencing and the hardware whether it's the software for saying, hey, we've studied a lot of chemical compounds over the last hundred years. What if we could understand which ones have worked against what and repurpose things? Um, so it's hardware, it's software, and it is the engineering of, of DNA and RNA, all of the, the compounds in our body that, I mean, it's, it's quite amazing to think about any disease that you or I could get or any genetic condition that our children could be born with there is a company that's working to solve that or eradicate that today somewhere in the world, right? It's not just like, oh yeah, we're happy, you know, we're we're content with the fact that people are going to die from this or it's going to limit your lifespan in this way. There is a company you could find for pretty much every disease that could affect you, me, or our children today. And many of them are raising hundreds of millions of dollars to go pursue that. And they're going to be there, you know, for the next covid or the next, um, you know, cancer is a pretty epidemic disease. There's plenty of companies trying to see how do you develop better, less toxic drugs for cancer. And then climate tech, too. You have billions of dollars going into, you know, um, producing less carbon, capturing carbon, um, you know, all kinds of energy uh, production and storage technologies. And so that's the stuff I find really encouraging. I think sometimes we get a little bit too focused on what is the latest cool app that is on our phone and is it addictive and is it good or is it bad? I mean, like, let's go to a higher level and say, we have this planet that we need to protect and we have people in our lives that we want to see live longer and, you know, and be healthier. And there's a lot of good stuff happening around that. 
Yeah, and I think what you're really right and what you touch on is like, let's take a, a healthcare issue is you are getting stuff that's stuffing the diagnostic side of the equation, treating the symptoms, the pharmaceuticals, the prevention, the diet that may be causing it, the environmental cues. It's like, so it's, it's not only is something being attacked from one angle, it's like all things are being attacked from like 10 angles at the same time in a volume that's amazing. And then actually, because we've got stuff like AI, data sets, et cetera, we're now getting something where if you get a, an invention in one area that can generalize, because essentially it's amazing for pattern recognition, it can be deployed quite quickly across other verticals, which means it's just, I mean, you, you touched on a really great thing, which you, you framed um, in the context of journalism, which is, I believe at the end of every good piece of innovation is basically, a, it's basically a series of questions that lead you there and and you can ask you know you could say how could we cure cancer well no that that's no way no single person would immediately understand the answer even if you could be given the answer it's too complicated but if you're asking lots of very specific small bounded questions you start to make these inroads i mean a classic one i was reading about the other day was obviously uh nuclear fusion and people go well <laughs> this is the holy grail but the steps that will get us there are not going to be this tipping point it's going to be a series of chipping away little answers and and and, and it will will it'll prove forward and it'll feel like a switch has flipped to most people but for the people working in the industry it's like we, we've got some questions we're sharing information and the more people that can work on solving these very small finite bounded questions maybe the closer we get to to something massive yeah i think that's a great point ed which is that a lot of times we become aware of an innovation in the snap of a finger uh and people are like oh there's this thing called the iphone like but you could look back for decades, right, to the very first cell phones and people who were there who were like putting up cell towers all around the world and who were selling these expensive, bulky phones in the 70s. You know, for them, it felt like a long time to get to that moment. Um, but I think the you know, the typical person says, oh, this innovation was just just released at the Consumer Electronics Show in January. They don't see the decades and decades of like foundational work that has to happen first for just about everything well, that's important i mean you, with the electric cars you go back to the 1970s when they got shelved you know by the oil companies which are basically like we, we don't want these coming in and stopping people consuming loads of oil um i've got a question so in your process of your work um it seems a clear ambition or, or skill that maybe you, you, you've got good at is um bridging these points between the corporate and the little guy and and how you do that and what that is there a framework that you work towards? Is there a way you can see that they can couple up and work more effectively together? Well, it's it's such a great question because we've, you know, at Innovation Leader, we've had lots of events that try to figure out that interaction between startups and big companies. And I think um, what big companies need to do well is better explain, here are the problems we're trying to solve internally, you know, that a startup could be relevant to. Um, and maybe it's an example like, you know, we want to put solar panels on the top of all of our cars and, um, we just want to understand what's, you know, figure out like, what is the best technology to use there, you know, to get the maximum power out of that finite amount of space, you know, so getting really crystal clear about where they are looking for help from startups or from outside inventors, people call that open innovation. Um, but you really need to spell yeah. out, you can't just say we want to, interact. We want to play with startups. Like sometimes people say the startup sandbox, like, oh, let's go to Silicon Valley or let's go to Tel Aviv and meet with a bunch of startups. You need to have that list of, of areas where you want their help. 
And on the startup side, I think you need to get good at understanding, is this company going to just take 25 meetings with me and never do anything? Or is there really an opportunity here? And I remember we went to the Innovation Leader did an event that was in part hosted at the Y Combinator Accelerator out in, in Silicon Valley. And one of their partners said, look, we counsel our startups if at the end of the first meeting with a big company, you don't have a sense of where is the money going to come from, like don't take a second mm. meeting, you know, because big companies, they love to take a lot of meetings. Um, they love to produce a lot of paperwork. And sometimes that that stuff just take, you know, sucks a lot of energy and time away from the startup when they really should be working on something else. So it's a, you know, it's a really challenging dance, but it can be, can be done. Maybe this is sort of testing your kind of post COVID uh, future gazing, but um, it seems like there is a different relationship with corporates and, and work and where you can work, how you can work and where you'll be and how you'll link into the office. And on some level that seems to give, the employees there are more of a sense of freedom, like that they are working in a startup. It's like, I don't go into this big bulky office anymore. I sit there, you know, I've got my family around me or I can choose to come in. So does that change the fabric of how these big companies are working? Does that make employees more satisfied that they're working in a more dynamic place that, that, you know, sometimes that maybe the freedoms that people want from an entrepreneurial career, they actually just want to be able to manage their time better and have more autonomy. So do you think there's winds of change there? And then do you think through that, it's going to help the two understand each other even better because it's going to sort of informalize some of the, um, the more sort of stuffy side of the environment. I think that it's hard to generalize about startups and big companies are all going to do this coming out of COVID because I've, I've talked to startup mm. CEOs who are dying to get their teams together in the room and have a whiteboard and be able to collaborate, right? And so in a way, I would say almost some of the entrepreneurs I've talked to over the last few months are more eager than the big company executives to get people back in physical space, you know, and they just feel like, as you said earlier, um, Zoom is really brittle. It's great for getting online tools are great for getting to do lists done and going through project, you know, a set of tasks for a project. Um, they're not as great for free form thinking and letting people spark off one another. So like I've talked to entrepreneurs where they feel like, are we going to force people to come back in five days a week, eight hours a day? No, but they really do want to pull people back into the office. But yes, I do think you're, where you were going with your prediction with big companies is they used to be really reluctant to let people work remotely. I think a lot of people are going to have an all remote or hybrid in office and remote relationship with a lot of big companies going forward. Um, and I'm an optimist and I feel like we're going to, whether you work for a startup or you work for a big company, um, in places where, where talent is appreciated and, and people are willing to pay for great talent, which is not every place in the world, right? It's a handful of places in the world. You'll have a lot more freedom and flexibility and be able to say, you know, do I like this, the mix of culture here of working from home and working from the office? Um, or do I want to take my talents somewhere else? And I do think you see some of the best people um, ultimately deciding, you know what, I love the scale of a big company and I love working for this big brand. And I found a way to make a difference at BMW or Disney or Coca-Cola or whatever the company may be. And some people who find that really frustrating and they feel like my talent is best applied in the 10 person startup and helping them 
scale to the hundred person startup. Yeah, and and this is the kind of dialogue I have in my own head, or, or something I kind of question my own value uh, to to the world, to innovation, to the ways I want to see change. Which is, does somebody have more impact in a big company making a small difference, or is it you know a, a small company potentially making a big difference vis a vis if um, I was a Facebook engineer and I saved somebody one minute productivity per day on average per user. That's huge. My impact on the world has been enormous. But it, and then maybe if if I really thought about it and, and I took my ego out of the equation, maybe that's got more value to it than any contribution I could dream of making as a, an individual with a small project. Um, and so I think sometimes what I try and say to people who work in cool growth companies is, what do you what are you loyal to? Because if you want to have an impact on the world, maybe where you're at at the moment is where you'll have the most impact. And that's pretty cool and it's pretty significant. And just because you can't wrap yourself in a in a label and serve it up as your identity, I think if you're truly serving the the value statement or the outcome, then you'd be doing a pretty good job. I, I agree with you. And I think that a lot of people, whether they're young or middle-aged or old, they have some broken ideas about startups versus corporates. As you say, you can have a really significant impact in both kinds of organizations, right? Chances are, you know, the headwinds are against you, right? Most startups fail and most big companies, um, you know, it can be very hard to have an idea that sees the light of day and gets to those, you know, a million Starbucks stores or, you know, a billion Facebook users or whatever it is. But I also think that people have some broken assumptions about, do you have more job security going to work for um, a giant financial service company like pick HSBC versus a startup. Sometimes you actually can have better job security in the startup, you know, and and particularly mm. if they raise some venture money, you still are going to be there five or six years later. Whereas in large companies, you sometimes may have very little job security. Um, but but I do think that one of the things that COVID did change that is going to be really positive is I think we our eyes have really been opened to the fact that you can be very productive sometimes in that heads down work from home mode. And I think we newly appreciate the energy and collaborative um, mojo of just being in a room with other people. Right. And so finding that ideal balance, like for individuals and for companies, I think is going to be about what the second half of 21 and into 2022 is like, but I think it's taking us to a better place. That's really interesting. I, I, I'm cognizant of not taking up too much of your time with um, without their questions. But what does the role of the company in its employee health, their mental health, and and how does that change? It is changing. The conversations around it's changing. Clearly, it's become something that seems more part of the custodianship of the company than it ever has been. And then do we live in a post-COVID employment system whereby we have an amplification of that mojo scenario where we, we take really specific meaningful time to hang out with colleagues and do something great rather than the sort of five day a week apathy where it's like oh i haven't you know you've sat next to me but i haven't really spoken to you for two days because i'm just mm -hmm. head down and my earphones are in and do we create more little points of differentiation so we can start to exaggerate these these good feelings these these well, you know, because over the course of a week, maybe they, maybe these things are what really start to improve people's mental health, health, maybe because I can exercise during the day, that's better. So to distill that down to a question is, um, one, a big company is going to be more involved in our, our personal life and our looking after their employees. 
and and will we see a sort of exaggeration of these these good points as you say there's always company, going to be companies that don't care about the health of their employees, unfortunately. And some of them are big and some of them are startups where they just grind people out. You know, they have a super ambitious founder, right? Who's like, I think you should be working 18 hours a day for me. And that includes Saturday and Sunday, right? And so like, let's not delude ourselves that all companies have been, have come through this pandemic and are suddenly enlightened and, and love all their employees and care about their physical and mental health because it's not true. But I, I do think that mm. you have probably more companies that are thinking about, even before the pandemic, and I think this will be true after the pandemic, that um, attracting top talent is really important. And they realize they're competing with companies that have lots of great benefits around childcare and around, <laughs> we'll buy you a standing desk or a walking treadmill desk if you want. Hmm. You know, and so I think at that higher strata of companies where they're trying to get the best people in their industry, you know, whether it's, you know, Google, Facebook, Starbucks, whoever the company may be, Bank of America, HSBC, if they really are competing, I think they are going to take health and wellness and mental health more important, uh, you know, sort of as a, as a heavier weight. And I also think one thing you brought up is like the culture of, of innovation and like, what does this feel like as a place to work and how much, how open are we to our employees having ideas and how many resources do we give them to develop those ideas? I mean, everybody works for a company and you put your finger on this too. Everybody works on the, on it for a company because they want to make a difference in the world and they want to do good stuff. And I think a lot of the 20th century employees were seen as cogs in a machine, you know, interchangeable. Mm -hmm. um, when they burn out, we just let them quit or fire them and bring in someone new. And I, I hope that we're gravitating towards an awareness that whether you have a 10-person startup like I do or whether you have a 10,000-person big company, that just increasingly like the brain power of the people who work for you, the skills of the people that work for you are the biggest competitive differentiator. Like they're the ones who are writing the code. You know, if software is eating the world, great software doesn't come out of nowhere. Right. And so you have to say, mm -hmm. you know, if, if the BS line about, you know, we truly care about our people is true, that there's a lot of day-to-day -day work you have to do um, around ensuring that people feel like um, they're in a place physically, mentally, geographically, technologically, you know, tools wise, where they can have that positive impact. Well, this is what made me so mad for the, for, for the longest period of time was that there was this idea that people, you know, people who worked were happy with working and software as gray boxes. It's like Slack has disproven that it's shown that people in a business environment do want tools that are aesthetically pleasing Airtable the same it's like you don't just want to look at a spreadsheet you want something more dynamic because that's how people relate to stuff so i used to hate this idea that people just get served up tools and it's like well of course that person's happy to spend 50 hours just looking at a, a series of gray rectangular boxes it's like well if you think design matters as a consumer why wouldn't it matter in the b2p space communication products and the things we do there and I, I i can never understand why that was ever not thought about and why we wouldn't try and delight it and it makes work feel more fun people do want to you know fun is important feeling like you're part of a team of people that you like is so important you know culture is such a squishy word but i think culture is important and most of all i just go back to people do want to feel like they're you know like steve jobs would have put it making a dent in the universe having an impact on the world, you know, 
And that can take a lot of different forms, right? It's like, well, we're designing great software. We're providing services that make, you know, um, going to your doctor's office a more streamlined, less headache-filled um, experience. It can be a lot of a lot of different things, but definitely a lot in alignment on you that Airtable, Microsoft Excel, Google Sheets, going back all the way back to VisiCalc, the first computer spreadsheet, which my friend Dan Bricklin um, invented when he was at Harvard Business School. Um, you know, it's that mix of utilitarianism of like, you got to get something done and then constantly like looking for the opportunity to improve. You know, the spreadsheet today is not what it was in the 1980s. And I think, um, you know, there's probably a whole case study you could do in like Microsoft after dominating that market for so long with Excel, kept adding stuff and, you know, accreting features all around that window. And there's 10,000 things you can do with Excel that I don't understand how to do. And now other disruptors mm. are coming along and like continuing to just carry things forward um, in spreadsheets. And it happens with everything. Like there's always going to be somebody who has, a, you know, a better idea, a way to simplify it, a way to make it more enjoyable to use. And I mean, that's what I love about innovation, right? Is in most industries, it it does not, you know, it does not sleep. Um, the status quo doesn't persist for forever. And my last question before I uh, let you get back to uh, innovating away is what will 10 good successful years innovation leader look like? Where will you try and get to in your journey throughout all of this? Well, I mean, for me as a person, I just like working around smart people and people who are great collaborators and have great ideas. So that's my only goal for the next 10 years. You know, I'm a people person. And so that's what makes the organization enjoyable for me. But in terms of our plan for global domination, look, there's lots of big companies mm -hmm. that have not achieved all this stuff we've been talking about for the last hour, right? They're not great places to work. They are not agile. They are not listening to customers. They don't care enough about design. They're not great at bringing in new technologies. They're not great at working with startups. And so for us, the next 10 years is attracting lots more people to our little campfire and helping them change that. Because I think most of these big companies, they're you can't wait for them to die away. They're not going away. Um, many of them have multi-billion dollar businesses that are going to ensure that they're around long after you and I are gone, right? And so we just mm. want to help, you know, help them improve and help them get better, both as places to work and ideally as contributors, sorry, this sounds, you know, crazy, but ideally as contributors to civilizational progress and making the world better. If you enjoyed this or any of our other conversations, we'd love to get your feedback. Our Twitter handle is at the startup Mike, M-I-C, or get us an email, audioed at startupmicrodose.com. If you're feeling particularly generous of spirit, a review on iTunes would go a long way to ensuring that we can continue to bring you these conversations. Finally, this recording could not have happened without the support of Founders Factory backed Entail. Their podcasting software and studio in the Daily Mail building, London, are as ever the unassuming stars of our show. Check out entail.co. And thank you for listening. Goodbye.